0: Бажаю здоров'я, шановні українці! Сьогодні день надзвичайно приємних новин для України. Є танкова коаліція, є рішення щодо відкриття постачання танків для нашої оборони, сучасних танків. Я почав сьогоднішній день з розмови з канцлером Шольцем, передусім про леопарди для України. І це саме та розмова, якою ми очікували. Дякую пану канцлеру, усім німецьким політичним та суспільним діячам за готовність посилювати захист Європи.
1: After weeks of diplomatic wrangling, the United States and the NATO allies have broken a logjam and reached a consensus. And the big winner appears to be Ukraine. In two major policy reversals, the United States will send Abrams M1 tanks to Ukraine and Germany will contribute Leopard tanks. Great Britain has already agreed to send Ukraine its Challenger 2 tanks. The Pentagon has also announced that it is increasing artillery production six-fold to meet Ukraine's needs. So Ukraine is about to get long-coveted offensive armaments, but with fighting in the Donbass largely stalemated and the frontline static, what will be the effect on the ground going forward? Well, I got just a guess to unpack it all, so stick around. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s Funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. This is the 100th episode of the current iteration of the Power Vertical Podcast. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And back by popular demand for our 100th episode, we're joining me from mount vernon virginia on land that was once owned by george washington is the one and only michael kaufman director of the russia studies program at the cna corporation and a fellow at the kennan institute and a senior editor at war on the rocks michael's also the host of the new russia contingency podcast on war on the rocks welcome back to the vertical michael it's good
0: to see you again hey thanks for having me back good talking with you again
1: good to have you so michael i wanted to dig into the effect tanks are going to have on the war in a bit. But first, I wanted to step back and look at where we are at the moment. Back in December, you co-authored an excellent, a must-read piece. You co-authored with Rob Lee for the Foreign Policy Research Institute that concluded as follows, and I'm quoting now from the piece... Ammunition availability might be the single most important factor that determines the course of the war in 2023, and that will depend on foreign stockpiles and production. As it stands, the Russian military will struggle to restore offensive potential, but it can drag out a stubborn defense. Ukraine appears advantaged long-term, but the longer the war goes on, the greater the uncertainty, and the advantage is not predictive of outcomes. Can you elaborate on this and give us a sense where you think the war stands at this point, and what can we expect going forward in the
0: winter and the spring? Oh well, that's a lot to that's a lot to unpack in, in a short sure amount of time. So I'm sure you're up to the task. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, do, I'll do my best. So. I think right now where we have been actually since uh, about end of October, early November is a bit of a transitional phase where both militaries have focused on reconstitution. The Russian military had worked hard to stabilize their lines, adopting largely a defensive strategy and trying to absorb and deploy uh, mobilized personnel, uh, plus set up a re- stand up additional reserves and entrench their lines as well, create echelon defenses. Ukrainian forces redeployed then from Kyrgyzstan. They've also been reconstituting in preparation for a set of offensives that I think they hope to conduct at some point in the spring, most likely. Uh, it's not quite clear when, but it's it's clear that some major battles are in the offing, I think, in the coming months. And I think the expectation was that both sides would press each other still pretty hard— but where you've seen that mostly is around Bakhmut, which became the sort of grinding attritional battle and had to some extent sunk costs for both sides, right? That is, it's uh, it's consuming Russian ammunition, manpower, it's consuming Ukrainian manpower as well. And you also have had Ukraine kind of make incremental advances towards the svatova Krimino line, which is the main defensive line, the Russian force 7 Luhansk. And Krimina is a very, rather important town that is where it's located that, that may position a siege of Crimina in the coming uh, days or weeks. Um, where this is going right now, I think, is you you have the Russian military launch some localized attacks or, or offensives. You have one in progress right now at Volodar. Uh It's a bit of a debate, I think, as to who's going to try to go on the offensive first. Will it be the Russian military or will it be the Ukrainian military? And, and which strategy makes better sense for Ukraine to go on the offensive early and try to take the initiative. Because right now the initiative is very indeterminate, right? It, it's not clear who has it. And we've watched the sort of period of largely attritional fighting and a reduced intensity fighting across most of the front and concentrated fighting in just a couple of areas, right? And so the question is, what's this is going to look like going into the spring and summer, which are likely decisive periods? At least, not for the entirety of the war. This war doesn't have a timer, but very likely for this year. You don't expect to see the
1: front line move then in the in the winter. You don't. You expect to see any real movement on the front lines until the spring.
0: Uh, I I think it'll be interesting to see what happens towards end of February March, mm-hmm. but I'm not expecting serious front line shifts as of yet. I think that one of the questions out there is to what extent has the fight in Bakhmut impeded Ukrainian planning for an offensive operation because Mm -hmm. it's been quite costly on manpower. And on the Russian side, I think the big debate is to what extent uh, constraints on artillery ammunition will really limit Russian offensive potential, right? That is, the Russian military is a military that needs both mass in terms of manpower, but also fires. And uh, one thing that sort of Rob and I described in that piece that you referenced is how over the course of spring and summer, the Russian military had a structural deficit in manpower. And it was compensating for that with a major advantage in artillery and firepower, right? But it burned through a lot of ammunition. And so going into the fall, after mobilization, the Russian military has the manpower in quantity. I think that's fair. Most people have observed the difference in in the density of Russian forces. But the question is, did they spend too much in terms of artillery ammunition? And that going to, is that going to limit their offensive potential?
1: Mm-hmm. So, and I wanted to, just before we move on and talk about the tanks, um, both sides sunk a lot into Bakhmut. Um, was that, is Bakhmut that strategically important that both sides were, were appeared
0: willing to incur
1: serious losses
0: there? Uh, itself, no, but the force-on-force fight, yes. So, you know, that fight honestly could have taken place almost anywhere. The town's significant is it's, you know, for Russia, gateway to Slavyansk and Kramatorsk. The challenge for them is if they get past Bakhmut, they just get run into another Ukrainian defensive line. They don't actually have any momentum because the Russian military lost Izum as the hub north of uh, uh, Slavyansk back during the Ukrainian Kharkiv offensive, they no longer have a northern vector of attack, right? And they don't also have supporting axis of attack from the south in Donetsk, because a lot of the Russian attacks uh, in Pesky and other places didn't get very far, right? So the long story short is that, yes, Bakhmut is technically the gateway to Slovansk and Kramatorsk, but no, if the Russian military takes Bakhmut, they can't break out from that point. They just continue the fight at the, at the next defensive line. The reason Ukraine's trying to hold it is if there's going to be a traditional battle, I think they felt that's where to have it, and it's not clear that it would have been better to have this battle having uh-huh. seen Bakhmut. So the folks – here's how I look at as an analyst, right? People say this is costing Ukraine quite a bit of manpower, right? And there are people in Ukraine that are also concerned about its implications. True. Is there a better place to fight than Bakhmut? Is it better to retreat? Because the Russians will then just continue pressing, and they just end up having that fight uh-huh. you know, 10 kilometers over. So are you sure that that next defensive line is much better than the current one you're defending or more advantageous? If it isn't, then Bakhmut is just as good a place to try to hold Russian forces than anywhere else, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Plus, you have some cost aspects. Like Russians are fighting for Bakhmut also in large part because they've been fighting for Bakhmut for seven months, and that, that happens in war and uh, Zelensky had gone to Bakhmut and had added political weight to a battle that maybe he shouldn't have because it's mm-hmm. not clear that Ukrainian forces can hold Bakhmut. There is a fair chance Ukraine could lose Bakhmut, and if it does, nothing tremendously bad will happen from the standpoint of strategy right. overall, just to be clear. right? It, it won't, but Zelensky did place political stakes on that battle by going right. there, right? So and, Russia and- can
1: claim a moral victory if they get it
0: they they sure sh- they sure can um uh, right. but but of course it'll still look you know on the map when you look at the fact that they spend over seven months fighting for it and basically only advanced a few kilometers at high price uh in practice it'll be a, a very pyrrhic victory and, and more important is actually ukrainian advances by Crimea and some other places that that actually have more strategic significance but either way a lot of this fighting is positional nature right it's it's trying to take better positions It's trying to set uh, the map, for lack of a better word, for a series of offensives and counteroffensives that are going to play out over spring and summer. Gotcha. Gotcha. Let's talk about those tanks,
1: um, the tanks that lost launched a million memes and free the leopards oh and, and Lord. so on and so oh forth. Lord. But in a recent thread on Twitter about the tanks, your, your co-author, Rob Lee, wrote the following. He said, this is good news, but NATO tanks are not a silver bu- bullet. Michael, how do you view this week's decision on the tanks? If it's not a silver bu- bullet, is it a bit of a game changer?
0: No, it was actually the least significant thing that happened from my point of view relative to the other aid promised. I'll be very frank about it. I think a lot of folks didn't see tanks as high on the priority list. It was a need, right? Ukraine does need tanks. I think we all agreed on that. I just didn't see it as a very high priority compared to all the other things Ukraine needed. But politically, it was very symbolic, Brian, and that was the challenge. Sometimes things, uh, in terms of political symbolism, they're very important, and in practical significance and the quantities they're being given. And the timelines, they're not nearly as important. Uh, okay, I'll give you my view on it. The tank debate definitely got a bit out of hand. If you look at the main issues Ukraine has, right, on um, first priority needs, it's artillery ammunition and the air defense, right? These are just things that Ukraine needs to get to the war this year. Okay? So this you
1: would is, say the Pentagon, at six fo- increasing sixfold the production of artillery, is more, more significant than the tanks here?
0: Uh, yes, but no, because actually Pentagon's increasing artillery production by several fold, but not in this year, or the next year, or the year after that. And so the problem is that you're looking at generally defense increases this year in some categories around 40 uh, okay. percent. But then the rest involves actually building plants, facilities and new production uh, uh, production lines. And so a lot some of these things you're not going to see until latter part of 2025, Brian. Just oh, to be honest with OK, OK. Uh, so be very cautious with some of those announcements because you can you can have immediate increases in production. And certainly in Europe, there are some plants in Europe that can go you know from 50 to 100,000 rounds uh, per year. But even still, the United States is pulling ammunition out of stockpiles on a regular basis to supply Ukraine. And this is kind of more of a medium long term problem. It's a manageable problem. I want to be clear, but folks like me keep harping on it for a reason. Manageable problems are only managed if it's it's a constantly sort of red blinking light on your dashboard, right, that, that you need to pay attention to Ukraine artillery use, Ukraine artillery requirements, and what have you. I, I, air defense system is another high priority. Now, beyond that, then there comes a second question. That's the core question. If you look at the situation going to 2023, Ukraine no longer has a manpower advantage relative to the Russian military. The Russian military has reduced the amount of terrain it's defending. It's considerably increased the, amount, the number of forces that they have in Ukraine, right? So the force density is right. much higher relative to the terrain being defended. That's a fair assessment. All right. The question then is, how can you provide a sufficient relative advantage to Ukrainian forces to be able to make progress and retake territory this year, right? What does that look like? Um can the United States, just in quantity of artillery alone, provide a sufficient relative to advantage to Ukraine? Probably not. The Russian military is first and foremost an artillery army, right? Remember I always say this. Right. So so just trying to out-artillery them in quantity is usually not a competitive strategy. Alright, so what what is competitive? First, qualitative advantage in precision guided munitions and precision guided weapons, right? This is not just uh, Gimler's for Heimars, but the uh, Provision of precision-guided munitions for artillery rounds, right? Uh, other systems like JDAMs, other systems like maybe JLSDB later this year, which is a small diameter bomb that's essentially boosted by uh, a HIMARS rocket, and essentially trying to draw advantage from precision. The second line of effort, and this I'm going to specifically to your question, if you're wondering where I'm going. The second mm-hmm. line of is. Ukraine needs quantity of mechanized equipment, it needs armored fighting vehicles, and it needs numbers. More is more in this case. It's really a numbers game, all right? To stand up a mechanized infantry brigade, you need something upwards of 120 infantry fighting vehicles or APCs. You need another 16 supporting roles of various types, okay? You need maybe 60 to 72 pieces of artillery, you know, potentially. Um, Well, that's that's typically how you see it. If you could have it a bit less, but somewhere between thirty and sixty is ideal of various types. And then you need one battalion of thirty-one tanks. Okay. Of all those numbers I just gave you, which of those sounds like the smallest and which one sounds like the largest number of things you need? Right? The the thirty-one tanks. The thirty one tanks is the smallest, the smallest yeah. of, of everything you need, right? So to stand up mechanized infantry brigades, to have—why and why, why are we talking about mechanized infantry brigades? If you want to go on the offensive, you need to have protection, firepower, and maneuver, right? You need to be mounted, unless you like—if you like doing dismounted infantry attacks, have a look at Russian forces in Bakhmut. Mm. Okay? That's what it looks like. It's not great. It looks closer to World War One than anything else. So uh, you need to create units. Now, each brigade takes a certain amount of kit. So the much higher priority, and that's what Rob wrote in that thread, by the way, were infantry fighting vehicles and APCs, right? That's what was in there, the big numbers. And the tanks, you know, to be honest, it's, it's not really clear that Ukraine's that short on tanks, but even if it does need tanks, the quality of advantage in Western tanks is not nearly as significant. The things that really matter are quantity of equipment, one, ideally more and more of the same platform, because you understand that whoever's handling logistics in Ukraine is probably about to commit suicide. They've just been promised, you know, four or five different armored fighting vehicle platforms from the West and at least three different types of tanks, okay, on top of the four different types of tanks that they're already fielding. Okay, so this person, the person whose job it is to do logistics and maintenance and sustainment for the Ukrainian military is dealing with an absolute zoo of equipment, and it's just been promised... A whole separate section to be added to that zoo of, of right. Bradleys, Strikers, German Martyrs, French AMX 10RC, okay, the Swedish uh, cv 90 whatever version of it that they send, stuff that I probably can't even think of that's been promised already, and British Challengers, German uh, leopards. Uh, L2A4s, Leopards, okay. right, and maybe A5s. Actually, once you go from A4 to A5 and 6 these are rather different variations of the tank. And in the United States, of course, at some point, being a bit cheeky about when we're actually going to send them, we'll send a battalion of M1. Uh, that
1: was just use. a sop to the Germans, who may, who in Schultz said, if you send the Abrams, my understanding is the Abrams is pretty useless to the Ukrainians. Is that correct? Because it's uh, it's it's very high maintenance. It's a very complicated tank. It runs on jet fuel. uh it it, it, it just doesn't really suit Ukraine's needs. Is that correct? In that assessment that I'm hearing from the Pentagon.
0: So the way I would put it is I would not say that's useless. I would say that I, I would say that the challenge of maintaining and integrating that platform might be much higher than the relative benefit that it provides when compared to going with the Leopard, right? Gotcha. Or or just additional numbers of Soviet tanks, like the Poles announced in their package that they're going to give a bunch of PT40s, right? Which is T72 derivative, and just maintaining the bulk of the Ukrainian armored fleet as the Soviet family vehicles. Because again, as I always say, yes, there's qualitative advantage to the platform, but keep in mind, the more complicated it is, the more training you need to get, what you need to get uh, the most out of it, right? That's issue one. Um, the more complicated it is, the harder it can be to maintain, potentially. The diversity in platforms will be a challenge and you always have to think of not the sort of tanker that has basic proficiency in how to drive, use the vehicle, and and what have you, that you can pick up pretty fast. Uh, You have to think of the poor logistician that has to maintain this thing, the people that have to repair it, and the people say, oh, that's easy, it's no problem. They don't have to maintain it. If anything breaks down, then it will be repaired in the West and Poland, right? Like artillery. Okay, let me tell you just something about that. What you're saying is that if 25% of, this type of armored fighting vehicles break down an offensive, which is quite possible, right? That the solution will be to drag them out, put them on a truck, then bring them to a railroad, then spend a week shipping them, you know, over to Poland, then like working on them, then take a whole bunch of time shipping them back. And at at any given point in time, a substantial percentage of them will be completely out of action, right? Right. That's in practice practice what what you're implying. And so the answer is yes, it might be, if they could be maintained by western technicians in poland yeah but picture the process of you know you're shipping it there and then you're getting it back it'll it'll take them out of the fight for a long time but you,
1: you you're not as kind of bullish on the tanks as everybody else is i it's funny how each of these things becomes kind of a political cause you know uh, we, we we've seen this you know before with with everything from javelins to high mars and now to the tanks and we're gonna i'm sure see it over the fighter jets but do these change what do these what do, do these t- tanks change
0: anything uh, do they do they increase Ukraine's ability to take back territory? The It's are positive development. In Writ large, any armored fighting vehicles being provided in quantity will allow Ukraine to establish additional brigades. Are they going to get there in time necessarily for a spring offensive? I don't know. I'm skeptical on that score, but maybe by late spring, early summer, sure. They'll be relevant either way. Is the quality of advantage that they offer so significant that in and of itself as a platform is going to make such a huge difference? Given How tanks and other things are being employed in this war, I'm a bit skeptical on that, but that's not what matters to me. What matters to me is, first and foremost, just quantity, right? I have a boring view of conventional war. It comes down to attrition, as I've said before. Replacement of material is important. If you want to stand up brigades, you need quantity. When Zillusion was interviewed by the economists, remember, in December? Mm -hmm. He said, what do you need? He said, he said, like, 300 tanks, maybe 700 armored fighting vehicles, (laughs) maybe 500 pieces of artillery. He wasn't saying, like... I need 14 challengers and the people can cobble together a couple more leopards and that'll be good. He gave like broad hundreds of figures for each category. Right. Okay. Where that's what I mean by it's, it's a numbers game. That's what matters. And ideally ideally you want more numbers of the same platform. Ideally you don't want to be putting together, you know, 28 brands and 14 challengers and something else. That's why hopefully it'll be mostly leopards that are sent. Um, But the more important part is, is uh, infantry fighting vehicles. The other point I just want to make very clear, the third level of effort is adjustment to force employment, how Ukrainian forces to fight. And that was, that's part of what the Pentagon's program for combined arms training at the battalion level, that's what that's about, which is getting better integration between armor, infantry, artillery. And, of course, you can't really do it in this war, air power, because it's a mutually air-denied environment. But nonetheless, that would allow Ukraine to not have to depend so much on artillery if that makes sense, and mm-hmm. a nutritional approach, the way they primarily fought in Curson, and be able to be more successful in manure. Because otherwise, I had to tell you why folks like me were saying tanks are not a big priority. A lot of times tanks in this war are being used for indirect fire support. They're basically being used just as artillery, right? right. And if that's what you're doing, I got to tell you, you'll need an M182 Abrams to do that. Right? Right. You can do that with any tank. So if that's what your tanks are doing 70% of the time, I'm just making up a number. Then you don't need tanks for that. But in general, uh, what I would say is that adjustments to force employment, on the whole, will make the biggest difference. So I basically look at it from numbers perspective, force employment. Right. You had another
1: passage in your piece that kind of grabbed my – the piece you and Rob wrote that kind of caught my attention with regard to Russia's quote-unquote wishful thinking. You you write that since Russia's failure to capture Kiev early in the war, quote, the Kremlin's thinking was increasingly characterized by strategic procrastination and wishful thinking – <clears throat> Moscow appears to focus on its initial war aims without an understanding of how they would lead to achieving long-term strategic goals and how the war might end. Can you can you unpack that a bit for us on this wishful thinking and strategic procrastination?
0: Sure. So I think over the course of the last year, I fairly commonly referred to Putin as you know not a master strategist but a master procrastinator, as somebody who, when something goes wrong, will always sit on his hands and wait for the situation to go from bad to worse before eventually being forced to make decisions. You know, One of the big ones you could see is mobilization. It seemed inevitable from the initial failure of the Russian invasion that to sustain the war effort, the Russian military would have to conduct mobilization. There was no other way to fight with such a structural force deficit in the war. And Putin waited all the way until it became critical and they suffered major defeats you Now in September to, to pursue mobilization. And uh, same thing goes with the decision to withdraw from Kherson. They did it They did it fairly successfully as a withdrawal, but it was obvious to a lot of folks, well, in the run-up to it, that that's a position that would become untenable for the Russian military. And uh, same thing goes with mobilization of defense industry and the economy for the war, which happened much later in uh, the summer, early fall. Actually, in general, Russia mobilized fairly late for a war that they were very visibly losing over the course of 2022. Um and then getting back to your specific question, what you saw consistently as a problem in, in the Russian approach to war is a mismatch of military means to political, political goals, right? You, you couldn't see how the military means available could possibly deliver on Putin's political objectives. And there were some people that I think pretty vocal about it within the Russian system. And the strategy as they pursued it had had the additional problem in that in trying to get this territory, right, and trying to capture Donbass, which clearly remains Putin's minimal war aim. That's why I see Russians fighting for Bakhmut. That's why I see them pushing, trying to push from Bukhladar. Right, Brian? They're, yeah. It's clear that they're focused on the Donbass, right? Right. And if there are going to be a series of Russian offensives, they're not going to be grand offensives coming back from Belarus or other places. They're very likely going to be focused on the Donbass and supporting acts of advance to try to to try to take uh, the rest of Donetsk. But what Rob and I described over the course of uh, last year, the Russian military would engage in fights such as the fight for, let's say, Severodonetsk and Lysychansk, the big battles over the course of May and June, that would give them tactical gains and would gain them some territory, but at strategic cost, at strategic expense. So, the manpower and ammunition they expended there would then leave them uh, tremendously vulnerable and allow Ukraine to retake the initiative. And while the Russian gains were fairly small amounts of territory in those fights, the Ukrainian counteroffensives liberated thousands of square kilometers at a time, right? So basically, you're taking things you're going to lose because you are setting yourself up down the line for, for a position of vulnerability, if that makes sense. Right, and, right, right. And so one of my arguments about Bakhmut has been the situation in Bakhmut's is different now. Ukraine no longer has a manpower advantage, so it can't afford necessarily to just accept fights on Russian terms, but whatever gains Russia makes in Bakhmut may come at the expense of artillery ammunition that they will need further down the line this year, right? So they are operating with some core constraints, in my view, and that even if they make gains, the expense may be strategic, and it... I don't think they're necessarily going to be in the same vulnerable position that they were back in August, September. But nonetheless, uh, what I think think we've consistently seen is a Russian military where the most competent commanders – and we we should talk about this maybe a bit later in our discussion – the most competent commanders, the ones that have the best understanding of what the military can deliver and can't deliver in terms of the means available and the kind of objectives that they could pursue – are often overruled by those with an unrealistic offensive vision that does match what I think Putin wants to hear, which is that the Russian military right. can still take the Donbass and do all these things. But in, pra- but in practice, honestly, it's it's unlikely. Like, their likelihood of success isn't, isn't that great, given how they've been performing and what they have available to work with. Gotcha. So this is the wishful thinking. Is this really a problem of capabilities or is it a problem of will? No, it's it's a material constraint. It's a material the problem, constraint. problem okay. – well, I'll say it's both. It's a problem of material constraints, fundamentally material constraints and resources available, and the fact that they are being opposed by Ukraine, but they're being opposed by the United States and large parts of the West. They're being opposed by by countries who together in terms of GDP, defense industrial capacity, and military armaments grossly exceed Russia's strength. Right, Brian? just I, well I say it's a numbers game. I mean, if you look at the numbers on who's on which side of this conflict, right, although we wrote in that article that potential is just that. it's not predictive of outcomes. It takes political will in the West to actually do all right. these things and to and to see it through but but the the numbers tell a, a particular story. The comment we'll make about will is the reason for war optimism, right and why you see I think. Uh, the Russian leadership continuing to pursue aims that would be very difficult to achieve with the means they have is because leaders of great powers have a uh, mentality that they, that they assume this is fundamentally a question of will, right? They think they have tremendous latent power. They believe that they mobilize their people, their resources, that they can overcome uh, the initial defeats. And people like Putin, I think see this very much as World War II, and they take the wrong lessons from the analogies of World War II. You know, political leaders typically reason by analogy, and they often strip away all the things that uh, don't comport to the analogy they want to use, right? And they take the things they like. So if they want to argue for themselves that this war for them is like Great Patriotic War for the Soviet Union, they strip away all the things that make this contest different from that and focus on the things that help rationalize the way they're pursuing Mm -hmm. it, right? And so usually for leaders of greater major powers, they think it's a matter of will, because they think they have the latent power and they can overcome. But the truth is, I'll close on this point, great powers lose wars all the time, actually. They lose them all the time, historically, yep. And and leaders who think that it's just a question of their political will to see it through, they lose the war. They can lose the war readily, because the material means aren't there, the military strategy is terrible, The force can't make up for a bad strategy because either it's not a good army or or, um, uh, there's no compensating for the bad assumptions and mistakes. But in general, uh, just yeah, great powers lose wars all the time, particularly those that are self-confident.
1: Before I move into the last couple of points I wanted to hit on before we flip to the second half, I just wanted to get your thoughts on this, the, the Belarus situation. Um, there's been a lot of chatter that there might be another offensive out of Belarus that Belarus might might uh, might might join the war. What is what what? How do you view all of this? I mean, there was there were fears that this was good, there were a fresh attack was going to be launched on Kiev from the from from Ukraine's northern border with Belarus. Is that something we shouldn't be should or shouldn't be paying attention to?
0: Okay, I think you should be paying attention to Belarus no matter what. Just in general, I know you do, Brian, because yeah, Belarus of is one do, of, like, one of my things. <laughs> yeah. But say if you're a listener, you should be paying attention. There is a sizable Russian force presence in Belarus. There are parts of First Guards Tank Army that are training there. It's clear that they use Belarus as an outflow for the folks they mobilized to train and drill there, because most of the Russian system, as we discussed before, was grossly overcapacity when they when they conducted mobilization in trying to absorb uh, the mobilized personnel. I think that parts of what happen, parts of what's going on Belarus is force rotation, but you do see a steady growth in Russian military presence there. It's nowhere sufficient to conduct a major campaign from Belarus right now. i just being very upfront of that. I think they would need probably four times more forces than what they currently have there. And so the indications of warnings would be months out of, of gotcha. a Russian buildup to be able to conduct it. And so we're not there yet. I do get a bit annoyed because I see a lot of crying wolf almost on you know, a monthly basis on Twitter and other places saying, look, there's Russian forces in Belarus. And, and the way I look at it is that's true. It's an important area to watch. I don't see the forces there for a return of a major northern vector in the Russian campaign. I don't think they would return to Kiev anyway. I think if they were going to do something, it would require a sizable number of forces, far more than what they have there. I don't know if Belarusian force would contribute to it. I don't want to offend Belarusians. They've been drilling and, mo- and training for the last year and a half too, Brian. But Belarus is not really known for having either the largest or the best army in the world. Right. So what they're – to if the Ru- – I'll put this one. This is gonna sound like a bit chauvinistic. If the Russian military couldn't do it, okay, with airborne coming in from Belarus, do you think Belarusian troops are better than that? Like do right. you think they're gonna they're gonna make the difference? And but the the concluding point I'll make is that if they are going to go back, it'll probably be an attempt to count to counter uh Western ground lines of communications. So it would be an offensive much further in Western Ukraine to try to sever the material linkages, gotcha. right? That would make They'll actually make some strategic sense. In fact, it probably would have made strategic sense as the initial part of the Russian campaign, rather than uh, this uh, completely shambolic uh, throw to Kiev to try to win the war within five days. Right. That being said, I, I, the amount, the number of forces they would need to affect a campaign like that is very sizable.
1: Right. The last couple just wanted to hit on you. You, you obviously think manpower and artillery are the two kind of key variables, right, uh, going, going forward. And so who isn't, I mean, we, we, you've alluded to this a bit, but just to, just kind of make it really clear who has the advantage in these two, on these two matrices, you know, or who do not... you, who do you project to be having the advantage on these two matrices? Put it that way.
0: I mean, look, I, I have to caveat this a couple of ways first. There's a lot we don't know about the state of Ukrainian forces, and there are important things we don't know about the state of the Russian military as well, right? I'll highlight where the uncertainty is, just to be upfront, and i talk about what I think is the best way to look at your question. So, first, we don't actually know that much about the current state of Ukrainian forces, how many units they've been able to pull off combat, how many brigades they've been able to plus up, restore they have significant casualties over the course of last year. Often your best people in your best units get attrition first. Then you're replacing them with folks who have less training, less experience, or are mobilized. Okay, that's the reality.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: a lot of times wars like this are fundamentally about reconstitution. And uh, conventional interstate wars, if they go on for a certain period like this for a year – It's a safe bet that they're going to go on for several years. I say it's too late to have a short war. It's already a long war by any standard, and it's going to likely be a protracted war. Some people don't like hearing it, but this month I've seen much greater acceptance of that, Brian, Mm -hmm. with positive results. The shipment of all this equipment is spending a lot of the money up front for the year of 2023 and getting on sending the equipment and, and processing the orders in January So that it's there later in the spring and summer. It's already about thinking through 2023 and into 2024. And I I actually I that pleases me. That means that people understand that this is going to be a longer conflict and that kind of hurrying up and being late to need at every single point isn't the best way to provide material assistance, you know, like the way we did with artillery last year. And then with air defense and electricity generators and other things, you know, later in the year. And it's sort of like just in time. To save Ukraine, if that makes sense, is not right. the best approach. The um, And just to add, people are still patting themselves way too much on the back about the fact that we're getting better at being late because this <sighs> equipment is still going to show up late to a lot of things. But, but it's less late to need than the prior packages of things being sent. Yeah. So I think right. people are overly portraying this as getting ahead of the problem instead of actually just being less late right. to, to Ukraine's needs uh, for how long they've been asking for equipment. So – Back to your question on, on relative advantage, and and obviously not knowing exactly what's happening with all the mobilized personnel that are in Russia that have been deployed and some of the aspects of their ammunition situation, what I'd say is that right now, it's not clear that anybody for sure has the initiative. It's indeterminate. It will reveal itself, I think, within a month or two from now, it'll mm. be clear. Okay. Uh, second, that when it comes to manpower, Ukraine has an advantage, probably role on quality and most importantly on the intangibles, right, when it comes to uh, morale motivation the Russian military. But they don't have a quantity of advantage anymore, all right? That's a significant difference, that there's relative parity of manpower deployed, okay, in this in this conflict between the two sides. And the quality of advantage that they have without a lot of investment and training can slip, right? Because, like, the Russian uh, military was pursuing a... Uh, was, was pursuing a campaign in Bakhmut where they were trading expendables, Wagner PMCs, a lot of whom consisted of prisoners, and they were changing them for higher quality Ukrainian personnel. Not one for one, obviously, the casualties on the Russian side were much higher, but you understand that if Wagner PMC can can essentially absorb 5,000 KIA of folks that they took out of prison and they traded them. For some number of casualties on the Ukrainian side, that's right. actually not a lucrative exchange for Ukraine. You know what I'm saying? Because right. those people don't mean anything to the Russian military. Right. Right. They're expendables de facto, to put it that way. Whereas Ukraine actually needs to husband its manpower resources because people are what matters. Right. The West can provide more equipment if like but it can't yeah, provide we more people. <laughs> we will. We will. Okay. We can provide more equipment. I know that. We can provide more ammunition over time, we can provide more equipment. Okay. We cannot provide more, you know, better trained Ukrainian soldiers if they lose their best ones and their best veterans. So that's um, that's why some in terms of quality, Ukraine has a relative advantage. It has some advantages in how it's using its force. I don't know if they're sufficient. I honestly don't know if they're sufficient enough under these conditions. That proposition will be tested in terms of artillery. uh, Ukraine has uh, probably still relative inferiority in quantity. But uh, qualitative advantage in precision-guided weapons and deep strike capability, that Russia doesn't enjoy. In terms of overall numbers of equipment, Ukraine does not have an advantage there. That's where I think uh, Western assistance will become will become quite important and key. Uh, and you know, there's no point in kind of going down the line point by point. But I think overall, the challenge this year is providing sufficient relative advantage to Ukrainian forces to be able to conduct offensive operations against an entrenched Russian defense, right? And stabilize Russian lines. And what are the best ways of doing that? Uh, And uh, at the same time, I think it's, it's also a question of making all the investments and all the planning for a protracted war so that nobody has kind of the illusion that Kharkiv is the model and what happened in Kharkiv back in September is going to be an exemplar of how this war will go and it will be a series of easy victories. You know, I'm, I'm always kind of the more conservative voice on these things saying, you know what, Kyrgyzstan's a much better example of how this war is likely to go. The next set of fights will be difficult and costly. You should never plan to win the lottery. If Ukraine is more successful, much more successful than expected, then brilliant. That's an easy problem to deal with. But if it's not, then better plan for that contingency,
1: right? right? Right, And we'll start to see the signs in the coming months of where, how, how a lot of this is going to play out in the near term. That's a good way to shift gears. In a few moments, we'll continue our discussion and look at the emerging rift between the Russian Ministry of Defense and the Wagner Group and what that portents. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And backed by po- popular demand, joining me from Mount Vernon, Virginia, on land that was once owned by George Washington, is military analyst Michael Kaufman, director of the Russia Studies Program at the CNA Corporation, a fellow at the Kennedy Institute, and a senior editor at War on the Rocks. Michael's also the host of the new podcast, Russia Contingency at War on the Rocks. So I urge you to check that out. It is a members-only podcast, but it's worth being a member. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical podcast, on Apple podcast, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter, at least for now, at Power Vertical.
0: Бажаю здоров'я, шановні українці! Сьогодні ми витримали черговий масований ракетний удар терористів. Удар, який повністю підтверджує все те, про що ми говорили з партнерами і вчора, і від початку нашого дипломатичного марафону. Це зло, цю російську агресію можна і треба зупиняти тільки адекватною зброєю. Ніщо інше держава-терорист не зрозуміє. Зброєю на полі бою, зброєю, яка дає захист нашому небу. So,
1: Michael, we were chatting off mic about an op ed in the New York Times this week by the Russian journalist Mikhail Zigar, author of the book All the Kremlin's Men, that dives into the conflict between Yevgeny Prigozhin's Wagner Group of Forces, the nominally private military organization, and the Russian Ministry of Defense. Now, leaving aside the fact that we both kind of think Michael's getting a little bit ahead of his skis here by arguing that Prigozhin could actually emerge as a challenger to Putin, the clan warfare between Wagner and the MOD is very real. And Prigozhin has aligned himself with Ramzan Kadyrov, Konstantin Malafeev, and Alexander Dugin against Sergei Shoigu and Valery Garasimov. So we see this rift developing between Wagner and the MOD, and then you see other players in the Russian constellation, lining up on Prigozhin's side, and I think these are the the data points that Mikhail Zigar who I you know respects, one of the best Russian journalists out there. But I but I, I think he got a little bit ahead of his skis. Maybe I'll be wrong. Um, but if that's that's the way it looks to, to to right now. But this clan warfare is very real. And what does this all mean, if anything? What effect does this apparent infighting have on Russia's ability
0: to prosecute the war from where you sit? Yeah, that's a great. Great subpoint. point. So I read Zagar's article. I don't subscribe to the way he depicts it. I think I'm much more on your side of that argument. But yeah, Zagar might be right. I just, I, I was a little surprised. I thought that mm-hmm. he was very forward leaning in mm-hmm. the way he was describing Pregosian's power and relevance. And I just don't think that matches up to my interpretation of the fact. Yeah, but, you know, mine either. There, there are two typical, two, two kinds of typical disagreements. The first is folks that are dealing with different sets of data, different facts, and the second one is folks who are looking at the same facts but are interpreting them differently, right? And I'm not sure which of those it is, but it was this. My interpretations first. Wagner is a dual-chain reporting creature, partly to the GRU, military intelligence. It is armed as supplied by military intelligence deployed often with Russian airborne and other units and has been in this war. The notion of Wagner operating completely independent just aren't the case. Yes, Wagner has its own fire support. Yes, it does have its own pilots that fly for it, okay? But where are all those things coming from, yeah? Who is doing the ammunition, the logistics, the maintenance, and all these things for Wagner, right? The military, right? So it, it, it's not its own completely self-run operation. Second, it's clearly seed-funded, and uh, has its own uh, political channel of approval via Prigozhin. That I think is true. And I Who close... has a direct line to Putin, or who, Correct. who had a direct line to Putin. Yes, that's right. That said, let's look at who the people are in the Russian system, right? The Russian system is one that's less com- comprised of institutions right. and more comprised of individuals and patronage networks and clans, yeah? Clans and national security, also large patronage networks, some national, some regional, and, but most importantly, the people matter, right? So Shuigu is a key individual within the regime, all right? If you look at his power relative to somebody like Prigozhin, who's an outsider without much of a power base or a patronage network, it's very hard to to compare these two on scale. What I think had happened during the course of this conflict is that folks like Prigozhin and Kadyrov smelled an opportunity, all right? The war brought change. It brought mobilization, it brought change to the system, and it brought a Russia where Vladimir Putin was first and foremost interested in what was going to happen in the war, if that makes sense. Okay? Mm-hmm. That created an opportunity for them to attack other people within the system, to demonstrate that they could do better for Putin than they could. The reason why Prigozhin and Kadyrov were uh, attacking other generals like Lapin, right? wasn't just because they, they didn't like him or, or what have you, Is of course they were attacking kind of proxy people that uh, were ways of criticizing the top leadership of the Ministry of Defense. Like Prigozhin cannot openly attack Shoigu, right? That's very mm-hmm. clear. That's not the way the Russia system works. He can only attack folks that are within the military right. as sort of proxies for the MOD. And, you know, it can be a three-star colonel general because that, that doesn't that doesn't matter. But you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So the way I see the clan fight shake out is – not, To me, progression is not a serious challenge to Putin at all. I I don't think he's actually that big of a challenge to show you either. Although I think I think Putin, and here I'm just engaging in sort of like intellectual tourist Kremlinology. This is not really well, uh, I, my tradecraft, and you know it. Um, but my sense of it is that Putin very much enjoys watching these contests. He thinks it actually brings out the better of both yes. of the individuals involved. I think that a lot of the public criticism of the Russian military and Telegram is very intentional, and it's often coming from channels affiliated with the Russian government, with the military, or with intelligence circles, and that it's an intentional airing of all the problems in the hope that embarrassing the individuals involved will improve performance. I think that what Prigozhin, probably wants, I'm just guessing, I don't know, obviously, I don't live in his head or Shoigu's or Putin's, but what I think he wants is to turn this opportunity into having his own Large, some kind of semi-state entity or enterprise, you know, like Rosovatnik Prom or something, where he right. just uh, right. has like, <laughs> Ros- you know, it's like Wagner. <laughs> Wagner is becomes this large. Yeah, I'm being right. facetious. We're, we're talking. We're, it's It's Friday evening. I'm being facetious, but you know that's what I think he wants to become. Like he wants right. to have his own uh, slice of the pie his own patronage network, and, uh, and his own big rent-seeking opportunities, I don't think he really believes that he can take on Shoigu. And sure enough, as you saw in the reorganization of Russian uh, military leadership and command staff for this war, with Gerasimov taking over as overall right. commander for the operation and subordinating uh, Srovikin back under him as a deputy, you saw very clearly that anytime Shoygu wants to, he can put Gerasimov in charge of the war, right, right? Uh, and, and that Prigozhin, Prigozhin, if they have to, can be suborned to some extent. So I am skeptical of how much Prigozhin's role is being trumpeted. I think the clan fighting between these groups is an issue. Definitely saw that Bakhmut and Soledad, where you know Prigozhin made it look like it was just Wagner PMCs that took Soledad, and the Russian MOD made it look like it was just them that took right. Soledad, and Wagner wasn't there at all. And they're both fighting for PR. They're fighting for the optics of who's actually making progress. Prigozhin's narrative has been the Russian military has done a terrible job. Wagner PMCs have been the ones that are making progress, and and he should be given more freedom and more resources. I I think that Putin's been willing to let this uh, game play out to an extent. Okay, mm-hmm. to an extent. I see. I see probably Gerasimo's appointment as overall commander is a loss for Prigozhin, just my own personal interpretation, right. the way that oh, shakes clearly, out. I don't clearly. know if you see it differently. No, clearly, clearly. <laughs> I, I think that's very much a loss for Prigozhin. And it's a reminder that, hey, Shrigo has far more power than somebody like Prigozhin in that system. But the clan fight we should pay attention to. It's an interesting dynamic that's emerged over the course of this war. Yeah,
1: and I mean it's it has real like um, real world implications. It's not just a shell game here. You you mentioned the the appointment of of Vladimir uh, as the as the as the overall commander. That was a slap at Putin. But that's also this is what the I lost count the third or the fourth overall commander that that they've had since the war started. Um, and it's only you know we're in one year. You also had the demotion of General Alexander Lopin, who you also referenced. Um, and that looked that looked like that looked to me like Prigozhin's in t- intrigue. And then you had him re-promoted by Putin, which seemed like a slap at Prigozhin. Does this affect? Does all this personnel kind of you know musical chairs
0: affect Russia's uh, capabilities to, to 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 prosecute the war? It does. So first, none of the generals who have done very poorly, okay, have been particularly demoted or gotten rid of. They've been shuffled off to other positions. Some have gone back to command in Syria some like Lapin have gone onto to the army's chief of staff, for example, they've maintained their ranks, they maintain senior appointments, they're just estranged from the war, or they've been sent to Syria or some other Russian campaign. So just to be clear, that, that system consistently underlines it's much more interested in loyalty than competence. And mm-hmm. even if you're not competent, you, the worst thing that'll happen to you is that you'll be given a different command, you know, elsewhere, most likely. Um, and and even if you're even if you're fired, you'll you'll emerge as a deputy minister of something or the head of right. you know Rostec subunit, you know. Right. You can still find uh former Defense Minister Sergiakov who was rehabilitated right. back to a helicopters and uh right. and the aviation <laughs> sector of Rostec. And so like can, none of these people go away, is what I'm trying to say. Uh one. And the second point is that the it, it certainly it certainly inhibits the Russian war effort, I think, particularly right now. Because the way I look at it is that who's been the most competent? Really Suravikan, stabilizing the lines, pursuing a defensive strategy, being quite vocal about the military constraints. And Putin was talking directly to him, right? And and I think that's how the withdrawal from Kherson got approved. The commander of Russian airborne forces, Toblinsky as well, a very important figure who proved quite capable, I think, and competent in the views of some people. After the relief of Andrei Serdikov, a different Serdikov. He's the head of the airborne, right. and he was right. seen as one of the people who failed in the initial operation to take Kiev. Like, typical airborne commander, overpromised and under delivered, you know, in terms of what Russian right. VDV could do. So Toplinski's also been—it's not clear what's happened to him. He's also been relieved. Along uh, while well, Survekin has now been made deputy commander under Gerasimov. Probably it's not clear if he's responsible for regional grouping of forces. Whereas Gerasimov now has brought in a bunch of senior commanders. Right? He's brought in Kim Salukov with him, who are all old, and all, none of whom have seen command in combat in many years. as they don't have recent combat command experience. Okay. But they are all Gerasimov's men and loyal to him. So what does this mean for the Russian war effort? Does this mean that there's going to be a huge new set of offensives? No, I don't think so. Does it mean there's likely going to be a series of feckless and not very effective offensives run by this crew of leadership, the the general that brought you some of the initial invasion on that plan? Yeah, I think that's more likely the case. Uh, it's going to affect their performance. I think that they've just rotated out some of the better and more competent military leadership that they've seen over the last three, four months and replaced them with people who have a vision that suits Putin's visions better, but they it's not realistic and they don't have the demonstrate competence to execute it, if that makes sense. This right. Way- this is my gotcha. shorthand on that subject.
1: Right. No, no, I think we're on the same page on that. Um, and, uh, and to wrap this up and put a bow in it, one last thing I wanted to talk about before we wrapped it up is uh, something you and I have been talking about off mic. And this is this um, President Zelensky has has uh, dismissed uh, several officials for corruption and profiteering uh, on, on the war. I initially interpreted this as a signal to the West the, because the, Ukraine's detractors in the West point to the corruption problem. Zelensky's clearly sending a signal that he's on it. That's number one. But I also think he's sending a signal inside Ukraine to say, "Look, this is not going to be tolerated. This is an existential war for this country, and this is not going to be tolerated." So I think he's trying to send a signal there as well. Um, how do you see this 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 corruption scandal that just kind of bubbled up this week in Ukraine?
0: It's a significant story. I've asked colleagues there, and and it is something that's talked about extensively in Ukraine. I very much agree with you on the first, that uh, there have been uh, these sort of calls of what are we doing about accountability and what have you in Ukraine that have emerged from different circles and in Congress. So I think part of that is to satisfy those questions, right, to show that Zelensky is uh, serious about dealing with issues of corruption, allocation of, of military assistance or spending, uh, the other part regarding the war, I think you're probably right. Here, here's the, re- the reality. Ukraine is spending a very significant percentage of GDP on the war effort, right? And uh, Ukraine has continued to suffer from corruption issues. It's certainly gotten better compared to what it was before 2014. That's that's a fact. But also one area where the symmetry between Russia and Ukraine maybe was not nearly as great was perhaps on the question of corruption. Ukraine's quite better than Russia but still has a lot of issues. And I think that it's it's incumbent upon political leadership in Ukraine to show that as there's a large amount of economic military assistance and a large part of the government budget is being spent on the war that uh, they're not going to tolerate what happens to be honest in many wars, war profiteering and 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 these this kind of behavior on the mar- particularly on the margins. So you don't see this
1: as hindering Ukraine's ability, the the level of corruption we're seeing now. I mean any level of corruption is too much, but as you said, when you're spending that much of your GDP on war, there's going to be a level of corruption. You don't see this as really hindering Ukraine's ability to prosecute the war?
0: So here's my view of it. No, but for reasons that other folks listening to this may well disagree with. It's because I actually don't see corruption as being nearly all that causal. To be, of, of differentiated outcomes in war. A lot of people use this as an explanation for Russian performance, and I think it's a factor, but I actually think it's probably one of the less causal factors of their performance, given a lot of issues that they should proceed on the list. More importantly, asymmetry, asymmetry and corruption isn't that significant to me as the thing that you should look to to explain performance. It's very easy crutch to lean on for causality, Corruption eats away at militaries, particularly in peacetime. So, whatever damage has been done has been done, right? And uh, I don't think it's that big of a factor in Ukrainian military performance. I also don't think it's as big a factor in Russian military performance as a lot of people in the conversation, particularly those people who aren't military analysts, have tried to suggest. I think if you look at the main problems of the initial assumptions for the war, the invasion plan, the military strategy, Big choices on force design what the russian force cut what they didn't cut right big deficits in manpower or deficits in other areas that that were the result of fundamentally of choices rather than corruption and a lot of problems they've had across the board and in the fundamentals you know in training and quality of the force and leadership not many of them can be tied that closely to corruption only some and i also ask myself compared to what basically i say if the Russian military had the corruption level of the Swedish military, would the initial invasion plan have gone any better in that first week, week and a half? And my last answer is probably not, to be to be right, frank. Right. Of all the problems with that plan, I just can't picture how a less corrupt military would have pulled it off given, given the fundamental problems they had with the war. Right, so right. I'm not trying to be reductionist. Of course, corruption is a factor. It's just a question of how much causality you draw to it. I don't think it's as big a deal. And I think there's a little bit too much harping on accountability for funding and things sent to Ukraine uh, relative to its actual impact on the war effort. That said, I'm glad to see...
1: Uh, Zelensky trying to do something about this. So that's uh, on that note we will wrap it up as I'm watching the clock um, and we're bumping up against the end. That's all we have time for today. <clears throat> I'd like to remind you, you, you have been listening to the 100th episode of this iteration of the Power Vertical podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And back by popular demand. Joining me from Mount Virginia on land once owned by George Washington has been military analyst Michael Kaufman, director of the Russia Studies Program at the CNA Corporation, a fellow at the Kennan Institute, and senior editor at War on the Rocks. Michael also has a new podcast out, Russian Contingency, which is put out by War on the Rocks. It's a members-only podcast, but it's well worth being a member and I advise that you all do. Michael, thanks for an enlightening discussion and as always, making us all a whole lot smarter.
0: Well, thanks for having me back on your podcast. It was great talking to you, Brian.
1: Great to have you. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Legas is in the virtual control room, keeping all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion, and Zachary Bell handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many, many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn in you can also access the podcast read the power vertical blog and access all power vertical blog products at powervertical.org. and you can follow us at least for now on the twitter at power vertical join us again next week for our 101st episode which will be recorded from the studios of uta radio in arlington texas i um, mean until then i leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team